All right, good morning. Uh, go ahead, take your Bible out, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians uh, as we continue our series walking through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, which is typically uh, what we do here at Redemption Hill Church, the letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We'd love for that to be our gift to you as a Valentine's Day gift, maybe. Uh, they're not read, but they are right out on the table as you leave. You can find them kind of anywhere. Just ask somebody uh, that's at one of the welcome tables. We would love to be able to just give you a Bible. We want everybody to have God's word. The words will be on the screen, but if you have it, go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, I do want to say, I said to the first service uh, that I was going to try to be a little more brief than usual uh, because at the end of the service today, during our, our time of prayers, we close out the service in prayer for another gospel center church in our city every single week. We're going to actually be... Uh, honoring and, and acknowledging and recognizing three church planters that have gone through a church planting residency here in the city that are uh, members of Redemption Hill Church that are getting ready to be sent out uh, and to plant churches in our city. Uh, and we are really excited about that. We want to recognize them today. So we'll do that and pray for them as a church family. And you'll be seeing a lot more of them over the next handful of months as they get ready to plant out. Uh, but it is part of our mission here. And so uh, one of the most exciting things, the most exciting thing we'll do today is share the gospel and worship in response to who God is and who we are in him. The second thing is that we get to uh, recognize these, these planters that are going to be sent out because one of our greatest missions in the city is to be able to plant gospel-centered churches. We desire to see gospel saturation in our city. Uh, we desire to see lostness decrease in our city. We know that as large as we might be able to come, and however God blesses Redemption Hill Church, we are not going to be able to reach every man, woman, and child. And we need more and more gospel-centered churches that love one another, love the city, love the gospel. And so we're excited to be able to uh, recognize these planters today. Uh, so we'll do that at the end of the service. But I'm going to pray for us as we, as we dive into God's word. God, thank you so much for an opportunity to gather together and to worship you. God, I pray that we would never take that for granted. And God, I know that maybe there are people here this morning or watching at home that, that are struggling with the reality of you and who you are and maybe to believe or maybe they don't believe. And God, in this moment, for whatever reason, you've allowed them to be here. You have drawn them unto yourself. And God, I pray that you would just make clear who you are to them. God, I pray that you would speak through me and every word that I proclaim would be of you and of you alone. God, I pray for those of us that know and love you, that you would just move in us powerfully, whether we know it or not, whether we have expectation for it or not. The thing that we need the most is to hear from you today. The thing that we need the most is to deepen our understanding of who we are in you. And for that to, to really color and be the lens in which we see all other things. And so, God, I pray that you would just move in power. Do what only you can do this morning. And, God, we also just lift up the church of our city. And we pray that everywhere right now that your word is being proclaimed, we understand that, that we are a part of what you are doing right now in your church. And so, God, I just pray that you would just speak in power, especially in our city, God, that you would add unto your church and that you would build your people up and that you would just move in, in, a, in a beautiful way in a way that's, that's visible and tangible today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Uh, here's a question that I, that I want to start us off with this morning. And, and when it comes to God, so I want you to think about when it comes to God and how you think of, of God. And when I ask this question, I, I want to set it up this way. I don't really want you to because I don't think it would be best for us uh, to answer this question. I think you'll be tempted to do so, to answer this question through a lens of maybe like idealism in your heart, like how you believe you should feel. Uh, how you know you should feel, how you, how you would tell somebody because you know the right answers that you feel about God. Uh, I also don't want you to be tempted to think about what you know to be true of God and kind of answer in that way uh, through your mind. And so I want our hearts and our minds just to be honest with ourselves this morning uh, for the sake of, of growth, for the sake of, of healing, for the sake of joy in life for the sake of us really pursuing the purpose that God has us here for. And so maybe just try to answer this and try to think about this based on how you actually feel and perceive and think that God is working and moving in your life and around you in your daily walk with him. So I want you to be honest, not the ideal thought or this is what I know to be true because I've grown up in church or I understand who God is. And so this is the, the church answer that I'm supposed to give. But I just want you to be honest with yourself. And you can do that because I'm not asking you to say anything out loud. Just to think about it. How do I actually perceive God, feel about God, understand God in my daily walk with him? So be honest about your tendency. And, and my desire would be that by doing so, we can actually begin to wrestle with and come to a place where the truth of God begins to determine our actual understanding and guides our actual emotions, that we would truly begin to live out the gospel. And so here's the question that I want you to think about. When it comes to God, do you think that he is in your relationship with with him, is, is God a little more about law or a little more about love? A little bit more about justice or a little more about grace, mercy? See, I think every single one of us, we kind of wrestle with this, and we have a tendency towards one or the other. All of us do. Uh, most of the even unbelievers that, that I come into contact with, when they are asked that type of question, it, it's kind of this because of the church and what they know about the church or believers that they know or what they've read in scripture, uh, they tend to feel that, and, and this is not everyone, but tend to feel that, hey, I, I feel like God is kind of more law. I, I read about the law. I see the church. I feel like it's law. I couldn't really worship a God unless he's about love. And, and of course, they're defining what love is, right? So, so they're determining what love is and therefore how God should should speak and how God should call us to certain things and those types of things. But there's a dichotomy that they even feel in what they read and what they see and what they understand God should be. And for us as followers of Christ, for many of us in the church, we lean to one side or the other too. And so maybe if you've grown up in the church and maybe it's been a more traditional church, you might lean more towards a legalistic type of point of view. It's, it's more about the law. Right? And you've even kind of taken it upon yourself to add boundaries to the law of God. And, and clearly, we know that God lays certain laws out. He lays certain things out for us to walk in. We'll talk in that in just a, about that in just a moment. But a lot of times, we even add boundaries to that. 
And maybe this is you, and you can kind of understand if your tendency is to lean in that way. And, and I always kind of thought about it of, of when we were out kind of as kids playing in the neighborhood, and maybe we were playing soccer in a field, and there was like a, a street and then a sidewalk that was four or five feet from the street. And so mom might say, hey, don't go past the sidewalk. Like, don't get close to the road, right? That was the rule, and it was for our protection, for our good, for our flourishing, um, and, and, but then there would be certain kids that would really want to push the boundary just because mom said it, right? Uh, and they know mom loves us. And so what's mom going to really do? She'll forgive us, right? Um, but then there were certain people who saw it, took it upon themselves to say, okay, the rule is the sidewalk. And so I'm going to put a boundary like 10 feet around the sidewalk. And if you get inside that 10 feet, guess what? I'm telling on you, Right? <laughs> And so eventually the ball is going to go towards the street, and if it gets in that 10-foot boundary, uh, you're going to remind everybody as they go get close to get the soccer ball that mom made a rule. And as soon as they go into that 10-feet boundary that you have made, you're going to go, ooh, you broke the rule, and you're going to run and tell, and you're going to feel, your conscience is going to feel really like it is incumbent upon you to do something about that law being broken that you made. Right? And, and a lot of us have that tendency, and, and sometimes it's good to put protective boundaries around, around ourselves, but we need to be aware of the reality that we might have a tendency to, to force law that isn't necessarily there. It's not necessarily what's good for all, but just maybe good for us. And we have that tendency, and so for us, God is more law. For some of us, God is more love. We're the boundary pusher. We're just like, we're going up. We're looking at the window to see if mom's looking and what's she going to do if I get this close and this close, right? And we just believe that because she loves us, she'll forgive us and we can kind of do whatever it is that we want to do. We can push the envelope. And what tends to happen in the church, especially, is that we begin to idolize one of those things. We define our community with God, our relationship with him, our salvation in him on the law or by love and grace, justice or mercy. And it begins to reflect in the way that we actually build community, in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we interact with one another. And then we get these type of, uh, of, of subcategories of people in the church body or these are these cultural aspects or cliques in the church, uh, clubs in the church that kind of live out one of these two different ways. And then this is the way that we define things in our culture and in our church family. Now, Paul has clearly over the last several weeks said we need both, that both of these things need to be understood, that we live in the law of God for our good and for our freedom. But we also need to understand grace, that we're not saved by the law, that we're saved by Christ's work for us alone. And in an understanding of the gospel, this has to be deeply rooted, that there is nothing that I can do to make God love me more or to make God love me less. He loves me because of who he is and what he has done for me when I place my faith in him. We've said that the only thing that we bring to the table of salvation is the sin that made God's life, death, and resurrection necessary. 
And so he came and lived for us because when we rebelled against him, we walked away from everything we were created to know, everything we were created to experience, the life that we were designed to have, the goodness that we all long for. And when we rebelled, we were unable to live up to the expectation, the law, as we will see, the design that God had created us to have in community with him to walk in the deepest joy by giving him glory in all things. And God God actually comes and lives perfectly for us by his grace. He dies on the cross to pay the penalty of our rebellion and sin by his grace. He pays the penalty. He he fulfills the law so that we can be brought back into community with him. And when he rises from the dead, he allows us in his new life to have new life in him. He provides the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in us so that we can walk in community with him by his power. So it's all by his grace. And then we're able to actually walk in community, walk in the law for freedom, to live for his glory with an understanding that the greatest passion, desire, joy that I have in life is to walk in the way he has created me to walk, to live out how he has designed me to live out. So we need both law and love, a deep understanding of what those two things actually are. So I want to really quickly, and I know... The setup might be a little longer this morning, uh, but I want to, and I think it'll be really helpful for us just for a few moments to think about and to try to understand why God gives the law at all. Why in the world does God give rules? Why isn't he just all about grace? Why isn't he just all about love? Or some of us might be thinking, why isn't he just all about the law? Because I'm really good at doing that. Like, I'm really good. Just give me the list. I'll do it all, and I'll get to, get to community with God. I'll make it to heaven. And then some of us just understand that I'm not going to be able to do any of those things. I am completely focused and thankful for grace, right? And so we end up on these two different sides of things. So we need to understand. I just want to take a moment to help us maybe understand. We don't have, I mean, we could do a whole series on this. And so we don't have a ton of time this morning, but I just want to help us just a little bit to have a deeper understanding of why God makes rules at all. Okay, so if we go back to creation and we think about all the things that I just said a few moments ago, that God created us to be in community with him, to be one with him. We were created in his image. And in being like him and being in community with him, We were living as we were designed to live. We had full joy, full goodness. Everything around us was good. We understand how to to relate to creation and things that God created and how to have relationships with one another. Because however, listen, we perceive God and, and our relationship with him will always affect our relationship with one another. And so we knew how to relate to his creation. We knew that everything he created was to give him glory with, was to reveal him to. And we had community with him. We walked in him. We had joy in him. Everything was good as it should be. There was no sin nature. We were with God. We were in community with him. We had joy in him. But as we know, most of us know the story and are very familiar with it. The first man and woman rebelled against God. They desired to be be gods, to make the decisions, to determine what is good. And when they rebelled against God, sin, brokenness enters into the world because we separated ourselves from what is good. We need to understand that when when Scripture says that the wages of sin is death, 
the reality and reason for that is because life uh, is found in God alone. He is life. He is good. So everything that moves away from him is death. It leads to death. It is wrong. It is bad. It's not what we want. It's not what we long for. And ultimately, every single one of us, whether we know it or not, we are in hot pursuit of what we were created to be in God. We long for it. And so we need to understand that, that when we walk away from God, we're actually moving away from everything we want. And so when we rebelled against God, we began to move away from everything that we were created to have in him, life itself. And though God did not immediately bring death upon us in his grace, he allows us to, to live. In life, we immediately felt guilt and shame. We were, we were immediately made aware of how short we fall of what we were created to be, how we cannot be God's, how we cannot supply for ourselves everything that only God can give and supply. And it left us searching for what we long for in created things. And so we have religions and relationship and scientific, like all of these really good things that God created for us to give him glory with and to point towards him too. But they can't be God's. We can't be a God. We can't be the God that we need. Nothing that God has created can be the God that we need. None of them can save. It, it leaves us short every single time. It falls short of everything that we long for. And we find ourselves, like we all know that, right? Like we just find ourselves a lot of times in life, like it feels like a hamster wheel. Like it's just like, man, I keep pursuing things. And as soon as I get something I thought would satisfy me in some way, it doesn't. Now I need more of that thing. Or I need something else to pursue. Like nothing that we pour our lives into with the expectation of it will provide something I long for and need ever satisfies the need. It wasn't created to do that. But we just keep pursuing it. And we're told a thousand times a day we're represented with a gospel truth of here is the problem you have. And every single one of us knows we fall short and have problems. Even the most narcissistic one of us in here brags about ourselves all the time because we need you to know and we need you to recognize that we are really, really good. Like all of us understand we need more than what we have. And we pursue it in all sorts of things. And, and, and marketing is set up to, to, to kind of really point to this. It's like, hey, we understand that you have a problem and we're going to provide for you a savior. And so here's the issue, here's the problem, here's the Savior. And, and when we don't have a, a relationship with God or understand the gospel truth, then we immediately just go, man, I've got a problem, there's a Savior, and we buy it. We try to accomplish it, we try to move towards it. And a lot of times it's really, really good things, but we're just making them gods and they cannot do that for us. They can't satisfy us in that way, but we instantly in rebellion began to pursue things God created as God's. And the law of God is given to reveal the standard that we are created for. The law reveals the life we find joy in. So here's what I need us to understand about this is, is that we say this all the time. When God gives us a law or a rule, 
It is not just to lord over to say, I have control and, and I just want you to know that I can get you to do or make you or uh, cause you to have to, to fret and have anxiety and worry about living up to this standard. And I'm just lording over you so that you can't have fun and realize that I am Lord. His no is always to protect his better yes. It's to give us life. It's to protect us. It's that we might flourish and understand the joy that we were created to have. It's that we would understand what we actually long for, what we're passionately seeking in all of life, but we can't find it in and of ourselves. And instead, a lot of times, I mean, often and, and in reality, we don't even want it. We're so caught up in, in being God and pursuing our own things that, that even when we hear the truth, we can't believe it because it's so countercultural. It's just so backwards to hear the gospel and go, obey to be free? Nah, that can't be right. How can I be free without me making every single decision that I want to and following every single passion? And here's what I want you just to think about for just a second. How well is that working for you? How freeing does that feel? But we need to understand that we were created for God to give glory to him in all things. And when he lays out for us what that looks like, then that is the path to freedom. That is what we long for. So the law for the one that doesn't place their faith in Jesus is a constant reminder along with their conscience because they were made in the image of God that we need a savior. We can't do it. Nothing in the world can do it. And for the believer, it reveals how we pursue to walk with God in community with him by his power, the power of the Holy Spirit in us, to live for his glory and the highest goal and the greatest joy that we could ever live for. It allows us to understand how we were designed to live, what we're called to walk in, and what gives us the greatest freedom. See, free from every desire. It's a true freedom, a freedom, a freedom from our past sin, guilt, shame. We've said a freedom from our present worries and anxieties, freedom from our future of what's going to happen and where am I going and where is my hope because Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin, because Jesus rose from the, uh, from the grave to, to, to give us new life in the present. And he is reigning and ruling and preparing a place and redeeming all things so we have a hope for the future. See, in Christ, we have a true freedom. We don't have to give in to our every desire, but we can actually walk in truth. And our desires begin to be transformed into and towards what is best. So listen, the law is a grace and a love to the unbeliever and to the believer. The law is love. And for the believer, God really gives out the law, as I've, as I've said, as a loving father. Yeah. Go back to the analogy that I used of, about how we create boundaries of, of sin. And a lot of times God, he, he, he gives us those laws and he, he lays out the way that we're to walk. And he does so as a good father who wants us to flourish. I think about the fact when I give my kids rules and, and laws, it's because I love them. It's because I do want what's best for them. And I'll admit, I'm not a perfect dad. I am sinful. So some of the rules that I give them are just to keep them from annoying me. <laughs> right? 
But for the most part, the laws that I give to them, it's because I want what is best for them. And when they break them, I don't just want to punish them to say, I make the law just to rule over them. But, but my heart breaks because they're not walking in what is best. And when I share that with them and I lay that out for them and I discipline them as needed to point them towards what is best for them and good for them, it allows for them not just to see the law, but to see my heart for the law, my motivation for the law, my love for them. And this is the heart of God towards the law. He put it on ultimate display when justice and love, law and mercy met at the cross. That he fulfilled the law and by his love gave his life. That we might be brought back into community with him, but by his grace we would be set free to walk in the way that he has created us to walk. So here's what what we really need to understand. We need truth to know love. And we need love to live in the truth. These two things work together. But the church in Corinth has been struggling to do this in different areas. And and we've talked about this little mini-series that Paul has in these last couple of chapters, chapters 8 through 10, where he's talking about Christian liberties. And so they're really struggling with this reality of, do we lean more towards the law or do we lean more towards love? And, and some are saying, hey, in regards to eating meat uh, sacrificed to idols, we're just, let's just live in grace. We can eat whatever we want to eat. And then some are going, no, 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 no. The law would demand us not to eat the meat because, because we, it's sacrificed to idols and we don't want to worship false gods. And so one side is leaning more towards this idolatry of law, and one is leaning more towards this idolatry of grace. And Paul's going to go, and he's been saying, listen, the two of those things come together, especially when it comes to circumstances of Christian liberty. Now, he's also going to bring up and kind of cover the whole gambit of idolatry that, that we struggle with and some of the things that clearly in Scripture are sinful. But when we talk about Christian liberty, we talk about things that are matters of conscience. There are are areas in Scripture that maybe aren't as clear as other areas. And Paul wants us to understand how to walk in the law and freedom. How do we honor God? How do we live holy in every decision that we make and do so to reveal love, to understand the love of God and to, to understand and to unify and build up one another and to love those around us that they might know Jesus towards those who don't know Jesus. And so we see these two groups that are idolizing the law or idolizing grace, and then they're going to have these other things that come up as well. And Paul has laid out to this point that where scripture is clear, that's how we walk. That's the path to freedom. That's the law of a good father who wants us as followers of Christ to walk in the design that he has for us. So when scripture is clear, listen, The law leads us into the deepest life and the deepest love. But when scripture is not as clear about something, then we are not to be led by our personal preferences or even our personal convictions, but we are to be led by love. 
the love that we have and the unity of the things that we know, the things that are true and, and laid out clearly in Scripture. And then when we are led by love in those areas of, of Christian liberty and conscience and preference and either, even personal convictions, then that actually allows us to lead into, lean into loving one another, caring for one another, and seeking out the deepest truth through that love. So, so leading with love in all of those areas actually allows us to disciple one another. It allows us not to just fight and bicker back and forth about preferences or Christian liberties, but to seek to grow into the deepest truth in those areas together. So Paul's been laying out freedom in Christ, a freedom that finds ultimate joy in Christ alone, is willing to lay down and take up Christian liberties whenever we need to for the sake of loving and glorifying God with all that we are and for the sake of making disciples of all people around us. And really quick, he laid out five things. I know you're all wondering, when in the world is he going to read Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10? I know, I'm thinking the same thing. But he's laid out five really quick things that we've, that we've covered. First, we start with Scripture. If Scripture says it, this is the way that God has called us, designed us to live out. And Scripture is the constant. It is the one thing that is never changing. It is the thing that we can bet our lives on. It tells us of who God is, who we are, what salvation is, how we walk in him. Secondly, what does my conscience say? And of course, we train our conscience in scripture and gospel community and prayer. This is how, we, again, we have unity in diversity, that we can love one another and not have uniformity in everything, but grow towards the deepest truth and reveal the deepest truth of Christ to the world around us. So what does our conscience feel? How are we training it? We don't sin against it, but we also don't hold that, that conscience feeling that we have against one another. Three, how is what I am doing, see, every decision that I'm making, build other people up in the church? How are we discipling one another in the church? That's the total opposite question of anything we ask in the world. In fact, when I say something like that, most of us are thinking, why? Why does it matter? I'll just do what I want to do, right? Like, I'm not just going to be a people pleaser. But Scripture lays out constantly that every decision, if we want to honor God, in every decision that we make, if we want to have the most joy, if we want to experience the most love and display the greatest love, then we are to think of, how is this building up the church? Fourthly, what am I doing to point those around me to Jesus? So every decision that we make, we're thinking, how does this reflect on those that don't know Jesus that they might come to know him as Lord and Savior? How am I revealing not the culture that I'm in, but the kingdom that we belong to? And then fifthly, in this text, he just says, hey, if we're going to honor God in everything that we do and reveal his love with all that we are and all that he has given us, then we need to flee from idolatry. We need to put him at the center of everything. And he gives us a warning. So let's look at this and we're going to summarize. I'm going to read verses 1 through 22 and then we're going to look quickly at the, the first part of it. We won't have time to get to the end this morning, but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual fruit, and all drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. We don't have time to dig into that this morning, but you need to realize that Paul is bringing Christ into the Old Testament, and he's saying the provision that happened in the Exodus for the Israelite people, bringing them out of slavery and into the promised land, was Christ. That he was active as he provided life and sustenance and the journey and the place in the Old Testament. He does so for us in the New Testament. He's going to make this relation throughout this entire text. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And we won't have time for that, but I would encourage you to study that on your own. God takes sin very seriously. Very, very seriously. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some, some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom to the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? And in a couple of weeks, we'll get to where Paul is talking about communion, and we're going to have a whole service on March 6th just about communion and, and fellowshipping in that and who Christ is and what he's done for us. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or an idol is anything. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate, to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right, quickly, I want us to kind of see what is taking place here. I feel like we really needed this, this understanding of the law and love. And so I know that takes a little bit of time away from, from the depth we would typically dig into a passage. But I do want us to see a couple of things here. Paul, again, has been taking us on this journey, talking about Christian liberties and, and again, this eating meat or not eating meat taken or served to idols. And he's basically said, our Christian liberty, our following Christ is not about what we can and can't do. It's about honoring God and loving others. And we're willing to lay anything down and take up anything and do anything short of sin to build up the church and to see others come to faith. So basically he said, hey, the questions that you're asking, you're not going deep enough. 
The gospel demands that we honor God in everything, that we live right, that we live righteous lives in him through his power, that we want to and desire to because he's done everything for us to live as we were designed, but then we love people enough to build them up who believe and to see people come to faith who do not know him. So he says, run the race. This is what he saw last week. And remember, Paul, when he's writing this letter, there aren't chapters and verses. So all of this is going together. And so last week, he, he ended up by saying, hey, run the race. Like, like, do what it takes to win. Pursue it with all that you have. Fight like you're not just fighting the air. Like you're not just pursuing life and worshiping things in the world that God created to give him worship with. And you think that they will do what only God can do. He's saying, look to God, run the race to win, pursue Christ's likeness, pursue joy, pursue the mission and purpose and identity and place that God created you to experience. Understand that and walk in that love. And he says, for those of you who understand this, I want you to be aware. He says, don't be unaware. And the the literal word there is, don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant of this, brothers. And so when we see the word brothers, we know he's talking about the church. Now, he says another thing right after he says brothers that's so rich. And we don't have time to dig into it. So I want to I encourage you and challenge you. Study this passage this week. But he says here, he says, don't be ignorant, brothers, uh, that our fathers, and that, that our fathers there is, is a beautiful thing that he's talking about. We see that he's talking to believers. We see he's going to bring in the Old Testament. He's going back to the fathers. So he's going to bring in the Old Testament. He's going to reveal that God's word is good and good warning for us, good encouragement for us, truth for us in all times, in all places, and in all things. And he is also going to reveal to us that we are a part of something much deeper. So when he calls us brothers, a lot of times we're like, oh, yeah, we're brothers and sisters. In the New Testament, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But what God is doing by saying our fathers, he's actually saying, hey, I know and you know that everybody in the church in Corinth are not just Israelite people. They're also Gentiles. And when he says our fathers, he's saying that in Christ, we have a deeper heritage. We are all sons and daughters of the promise to Abraham. I don't really have time for this, but I'm going to read this to you really quickly. Genesis 7, 22, 17, 18, God's promise to Abram, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's our present and our future. God wins. Now the mission. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's us. Because you have obeyed my voice. Now, pay attention to what's happening here. This is love displayed through obedience to the law. This is the law of God, the path of freedom coming together with an understanding of deep love that that God is calling together, together a family and that we have a mission to bless the nations. And Paul's saying, hey, you have a heritage. I know that. And some of you in here, you might know your heritage and and you've done all the research online, but I want you to know that you have a deeper family. You have a deeper heritage. You are a son or a daughter of God. You are a brother or sister to those in the faith. And he says, don't live in ignorance. And here's the thing. Most of us and most of the world, as brilliant as we are, 
the world around us lives in ignorance to what Paul is talking about. And for many of us in the church, we fall into what Paul is talking about here, idolatry, putting things before God. And we fall into it ignorantly. We, we believe maybe that we're not even doing it. Sometimes we even do it in the name of God. And so he says, remember what happened in the Old Testament. He says, all of this was written down as an example to us. And he goes back to the Exodus. And he says, hey, do you remember when, when the people were brought out of the land of Egypt? Our fathers, they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And he says, they were all baptized into Moses. And baptism then in the New Testament, you see people baptized as disciples of John the Baptist and baptized in Jesus. And baptism then was done to identify with a leader and to identify with the way of the leader. And so he's recognizing that as we are baptized into Jesus, identifying with him as king savior, and that by being going under the water and representing death to the old life and rising and representing new life in him to live in the way that we were created and designed to live, we are recognizing that we are to walk in his way, that we are to live obedient to him, that we desire holiness as he is created, and that is where freedom is. He says, that happened to them with Moses, that happens to us with Jesus. And then he adds, all ate the same spiritual fruit and drink. And the word spiritual there, we typically think of the word spiritual as something that's like mystical. It's invisible. But when Paul uses it, every time he uses it in the New Testament, as a very literal meaning. And what it means is you're animated by. So spiritual is not this mystical thing. It means something is animated by God. Something is, is being done by God, but it's, it's a real thing with real consequences and real actions. So when he says the spiritual food and the spiritual drink, he's going, hey, manna really came from heaven and it really sustained. It really gave you life, but it was a complete God thing. You had nothing to do with it. When water came from the rock, that really gave you water and it really sustained you and gave you life and the ability to pursue everything that he was calling you and leading you to. But it was a real thing that really did something, but it was completely from God. It was a spiritual thing. Then he says, he goes on in verse five, all of this happened, but remember, most people didn't respond very well. See, he points out the goodness of God but the brokenness of man, even in relation to the goodness of God. God was with the people in the Old Testament. His hand of blessing was upon them. He was showing up in big ways. He was showing up and showing out. Like most of us tend to read stories like Exodus and the Exodus of the Israelite people. And we go, man, if God showed up and just brought me out of slavery like that, and, and he just gave me manna from heaven, and he gave me water from a rock, and he was leading me all, led us through the Dead Sea. Holy smokes. Like, I would never question him. I would never worship anything above him. Everything else would fall underneath him. And Paul's making the point, if we believe that, then we're ignorant. It's, it's, it's arrogant. Like, we're, 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 we're probably going to face a fall, he says. Because they experienced all these things, and it's an example to us. The hand of God was with them, but they missed it, and they end up dying in the desert. And he says in verse 6, we should let this be a warning to us. 
So I imagine Paul kind of laying all of these things out, and, and I don't know how he said it, but basically this is what he says. Remember how our fathers did in all things? Remember how they were baptized into Moses as you were baptized into Jesus? Remember how God's spirit was over them like a cloud by day and a fire by night, kind of like the spirit lives and dwells in you and guides you, and even today we have his word. Remember how God gave the Israelite people food and drink to save them and give them life, and he gives you spiritual food and drink, and we partake of communion to remind us of his broken body and blood, that we have salvation in Jesus alone? See, here's the idea. He fed them. He feeds you. He provided for them. He provides for us. He brought them out of physical slavery. He brings us out of spiritual slavery. He's taking them into the promised land, and he is taking us to the promised kingdom. He took them through a desert. He's taking us through a mission. But in their ignorance, they were close to God. They were cared to by God. They had his blessing. They had his future and his hope, but they failed to realize that he is the only thing worthy of worship. See, this is the warning to us that we are to be completely surrendered to God that we are to worship him above all other things. Paul says, church, let this be an example. This happened, and this happens. Don't miss it. We need to understand that we can walk into the church and walk away from God. We need to understand that we can read the Bible while creating our own truth. We can pray to God as though he belongs to us, We can sing songs of praise while our hearts worship other things. And we can know the truth and fail to be transformed by it. Paul says, don't be ignorant of that. Don't don't be idolaters. Don't fall into idolatry. And we need to know, and, and I'll wrap it up with this, that every single one of us worships. We never take a break from worshiping. We were created to worship. Peter Kratz, a philosopher, he says the opposite of Christianity is an atheism, but idolatry. We all have gods, and we constantly worship. And see, idolatry is often thought of as like just worshiping a statue in a temple or a golden calf like in Exodus. But listen to me, idolatry is not so much what you bow down to, but what you think will bring you up to the place that you belong to be. Only God can do that. You can only lean on him. Anything can be an idol, even really, really good things. And we need to understand that what we worship will control us. Paul lays out the four common things to them, and certainly we struggle with these things as well, and he warns us not to fall into them. And he gives us a hope, he says, that, that no temptation can overcome us in Christ. If we're just seeking him, if we're pursuing him, if we're worshiping him, he will always be our greatest desire. And our greatest desire will always be what we act, what we live, what we do, what we reveal. So it says, therefore, flee from idolatry. It'll take your life. It will lead you away from God as you worship other things. And anything, as we said, that you do that leads you away from God, leads you away from everything that you long for. It will keep you from walking in truth and in love. I want to take 60 seconds. Give me 60 more seconds. I want to help us think through. I just want to ask a couple of questions. What might be keeping me from walking in deep truth and love? 
What might I put before God? The first one's pretty obvious, but I just want you to think about where do I spend my time, money, and energy? Those might be on really good things, but the question is, what is my motivation that I spend my time, energy, and money on those things? What's the mission? What's coming out of them? Number two, what would you describe, and maybe you've thought of this, maybe you never have, but what would you describe as your living hell? Like the worst thing that could happen to you, like is your living hell on earth being poor? Then you're probably going to tend to idolize being financially secure. Is your living hell being single? Then you're going to see a savior as a relationship. Is your living hell being unhealthy? Then you're going to be tempted to idolize health. What do you run to for help when you need rest or comfort? Is it food, entertainment, alcohol, sex, sports? For what do you complain about the most? What makes you the most angry? What makes you the most happy? Where, where do you get mad at God because he's not doing it the way you would do? Where are you testing him rather than trusting him? Here's the last one. If you could have anything right now, anything, and it would be done, what would you want? Holiness? Righteousness? That friend that doesn't know Jesus to know Jesus? See, how we answer these questions, some of them might be clearly sinful in Scripture, and some of them might be really good things that we're just making a God. And they're keeping us from everything we can only have in him. Joy, purpose, and mission. Let's be a people who put him first, who do not fall to other gods and kings, and live in truth and love.